Do you think this is a good episode? I think it is. I felt good talking. So I think it was good for me. And really, isn't that the entirety of my experience in this fandom is just doing what I want and not caring about anybody else? Yes. So I think it's great. Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where MFA verse fic about shitty singing bitty shopping list to him on a ukulele as they stroll around the stop and shop is coming soon. In the meantime, this is a podcast about reading the comic Check Please and talking about what's happening in current strips as we go through the story and also thinking about how the overarching story is coming together. I am Secret OMG, and who's who's with me to talk about ukuleles? I'm Tomato, and I'm on fire, both about what we're about to talk about today, which, guys, I think it's going to be a good one. Hopefully I won't jinx it by saying that. And furthermore, by the idea of Shitty just insistently singing like cans of beans to Biddy's head while Biddy tries really hard not to murder him in the already aptly named murder stop and shop. That just feels right to me. Biddy's like, it's not an instruction. But let's talk about this weird strip that we're looking at today. Yeah, today we're looking at 14.5 Winter Screw which I have no idea when it was posted because it was never posted. It's not online. It's in the year one Kickstarter book on pages 214 to 222. And for all I know, also in hashtag hockey, but I don't own it. So yeah, it's probably in there. Anyway, this is a strip that was a Kickstarter goal in the first campaign Ngozi ever did to print the first year of the comic. So this Kickstarter ran from April to May 2015. It eventually made $75,000 on what was an initial goal of $15,000. And because it made so much extra money, it hit several stretch goals. Actually, I believe it hit all of its stretch goals. And its stretch goal at the $30,000 level was to create a bonus comic. So this is the bonus comic that came out of the first year one Kickstarter. And it first appeared in the back of that book. I don't know the exact date when the book was released because it was self-published. So I have no idea when it was originally shipped to backers, but it basically became available sometime in the fall of 2015 is my understanding. And now of course you can buy it on her website. You can download it from the like itch.eo site. You can buy it from her at a con. However, it's not available in retail stores. You can only buy it from Ngozi in particular. Interestingly enough, this Kickstarter had a lot of drama surrounding it, which I don't think we necessarily want to get into here. But I would feel sort of neglectful if I didn't note that one of the many waves of fans away from Check, Please, the kind of ongoing disillusionment process with this comic centered around how this particular Kickstarter was handled. As far as I'm aware, there's no drama about this bonus comic, but there is some about the $1,000 reward tier. One person bought a reward that had them commission a standout, like a stand-up cutout figure from Ngozi, 
They requested Kent Parson. We don't know who that is. However, there were some issues with that order, and it created a lot of disillusionment in a certain subset of fans over there. At the same time, this entire comic went on hiatus while this campaign was going on and being fulfilled. So between March of 2015, when Ngozi was preparing to do this particular Kickstarter, and September of 2015, when fulfillment started, there were no comics posted at all. So I think a lot of people kind of bled out of the fandom and got very frustrated while this was going on. Incidentally, another Kickstarter stretch goal was for more frequent updates or more regular updates. And many people over the years have complained that that stretch goal was not really honored. I was not around at the time, so I can't say what exactly the bargain or the promise was that people feel was not fulfilled. But this particular strip that we're going to be talking about comes at kind of an interesting and weird time, and it fits into the comic in an interesting and weird way. This strip is being drawn over a year after, possibly as much as like a year and a half after. It fits chronologically into the narrative of the comic. So the two strips around it are taking place in the winter of 2013, early winter 2014, and roughly like early 20. 14 is when these strips were being posted. This 14.5 comic is something that's drawn like way, way later to kind of fill in continuity about Biddy's first semester. You might notice if you have access to this strip and you look at it that the art style is like super evolved. So I think probably the, the most distinct aspect of that is that like, I don't know, her art style gets much more fluid. Her lines seem more confident. Things are very like bold. It really matches this, you know, middle of year two art style that we see her using there because that's roughly around the same time that she was drawing this strip. I would say if you really want to see just like how much her art style has evolved, look at Jack from like the first comic of year one, semester two, and then look at him in this strip. And you can really see like how evened out and how much her style has become more distinct and smoother. I want to briefly comment only on the Kickstarter. I, I funded this kinks Kickstarter. Oh no! I was one of the backers of this Kickstarter, and I remember some of the brouhaha about the updates. I personally never, it never bothered me because I'm a long-term fan of webcomics, and webcomics always have weird hiatuses, especially like full-color complicated webcomics. That's classic. Also, a lot of webcomics that I used to love just like stopped one day. So that was my perspective. Other people maybe didn't have that experience or had different expectations or had paid money and thought, you know, hey, one of the promises from this money that I paid was semi-regular updates. I don't think there was a specific timeline attached to the promise. I've deleted the email like long ago that I got. I don't think there was a specific every week update or anything like that, but it was a promise of something like once a month-ish or more often with a sort of wink towards monthly updates, something like that. And then of course it immediately didn't happen and people did get really frustrated. And in her later Kickstarters, she never promised more regular updates again. So I guess Ngozi learned that lesson as many artists do. One thing is that, yeah, regular updates are not, it's sort of subjective. And it's also not something you can create 
one time and distribute to backers of the Kickstarter, like a bonus comic or a jersey or whatever. It is kind of like an ongoing condition. So you're tying the terms of the fulfillment of the Kickstarter to the creation of the comic rather than the printing of the book. So that's a little weird, and I understand why she maybe did it at the time, but it's not like a natural fit for what the project is versus what the comic is. The other thing I would point out about the the context of that promise is that even though this is printing year one, she was in the middle of writing year two while this campaign was going, and she was tweeting as Biddy, and you were starting to get a really visible, obvious lag in what was happening in the life of Biddy versus where comic updates were. So this Kickstarter was launched in terms of the storyline of Check, Please in the aftermath of the Parse arc that ended year two, semester one, and the first one or two strips of the second year and the semester two. And these strips are kind of like marching into Jack and Biddy getting together. So the fact that she was like really behind, I think was something that was materially, fundamentally broken. Not that she owes anybody updates necessarily, I guess, unless she promises them as a stretch goal and a Kickstarter, but it was very obvious and felt, I think, off to a lot of people because you have a second mechanism beside the comic itself telling people how far behind she was in posting. So again, you were there and I was not there, but looking at it through that perspective, I can kind of see why people would be really agitated by this because she had done something to set this project apart from other web comics. But she had tied it to like a specific medium, Twitter, that was happening in real time. And she also had tied it both to this financial situation with the Kickstarter and with her degree work at SCAD. So all of a sudden it wasn't just like something you were doing for fun on the side, it was something that was tied to like material things where the regularity of updates would have a meaning other than just the satisfaction of readers. That's my really, really obnoxious, I think the word I used earlier today was blowhard. I mean, but I think it's a good point. It's hard for me to sometimes think critically about that time because I am attached to how I felt at the time, which was like, okay, do you know what I mean? So it's helpful to see another perspective. I do also wonder why she tied herself not to the Twitter, but to the Twitter updating in real time. Because I think it would have been perfectly possible to use Twitter as a sort of in-between updates loosey-goosey slice of life all time is no time medium do you know what I mean like I don't think that the Twitter had to update in real time I think certainly it was something that was fun it was like a fun part of it but once she started falling behind I think that that link to, to verisimilitude for lack of a better word didn't serve her 
as a writer and then eventually didn't serve the comic because she ended up closing the Twitter, right? So clearly it wasn't ultimately effective use. I've always wondered why she stuck to the actual real-time quality of the Twitter, including continuing to tweet while it was locked and then releasing them in batches months after when she had actually made the comic strip, which didn't always actually align exactly with what she had tweeted like six months earlier. So I've always kind of wondered why she took that approach. Partly she probably wanted the timestamps because if you're actually going to tweet, that is not make a mock-up of somebody's Twitter page, but rather actually have a Twitter account to get the timestamps that align with Biddy's experience in the real world as we experience it. You need to do it in real time. And I mean, my understanding, again, of something that I was not experiencing from reading people's perspectives is that there was a huge amount of excitement about the fact that like, oh, this is what Biddy is doing in real life right now. So like when he was at Epic Hegster, and tweeting about what was happening at Epic Hegster. I think people who were up that night, you know, getting updates from OMG Check Please were like excited. Oh, that's, that is true. I mean, I think that's real, right? And I think that the timestamp, if you are able to keep a schedule, is a really useful storytelling technique. I've never understood this from a PR perspective because exactly that excitement, which is an excitement I felt, like I too followed along with this Twitter and was really psyched about it could have kept coming, like it could have kept happening even if it didn't exactly align with the actual timeline of the work. I think it probably has to do with the shift that you originally mentioned where this turned into a graphic novel that became more and more tied to its own story instead of to its extras and sort of concentric circles of canon. I think probably also managing the Twitter became overwhelming. I'm sure lots and lots of people followed it and it became stressful. And I'm sure it took a lot of energy. So I'm sure there are good reasons for having done it the way she did it. Or maybe it just served its purpose and she kind of like launched into mainstream publishing and launched into mainstream success and she didn't need it anymore. That's also a possibility. But I always wondered because the excitement for me of trying to see what Biddy was doing or whatever often made up for those hiatuses. And then I didn't care, especially what was going on in the timestamp. I, I just believed Biddy when he was like, this is what's happening. And I was like, sure, sounds good. Do you know what I mean? Because that's part of suspending your disbelief when you read a piece of fiction is you just accept the reality that the character gives you. So if Biddy's like, I'm having a Christmas ham or whatever, and it's, you know, July, okay, fine. I believe that she made this whole multi-platform storytelling thing like her MFA thesis. Yes, I think she did. So I think at a certain point, she didn't have a choice but to follow through on it. Yeah, I just still think she didn't have to be um, attached to the timestamps. That's all. I I think she could have kept using the Twitter as a go-between. And I wonder whether that would have impacted fans' frustration in a different way. But maybe not. Or maybe the timestamps were really important to her in the way she considered the structure of the storytelling. I don't know. I always thought she seemed very attached to this idea that she had known everything from the beginning and it was all planned out and everything was going to be as it was going to be from the beginning. Because she said that narrative a few times, of course, I don't know whether this is a real memory and have to go back and like reread things that might not even be around anymore. But that was my impression. So I also always felt that that was a weakness because part of making a story is that it changes. But that's me. Anyway, Ngozi, one of us is a New York Times bestselling author and one of us isn't. So, you know, take, take me with a grain of salt. 
I think we both know that being a New York Times bestseller means literally nothing. Well, it means that you're a New York Times bestseller. And, uh, and that's what it means. That's yeah, but what- nobody even knows how those things are like calculated. Nobody knows how many books you have to sell to be a New York Times bestseller. That's true. Let's summarize the comic. I'm, I grow weary of these, these tweet discussions. So we open with Ransom and Holster saying, right, so we scrapped the list of chicks when you said you like dudes and wrote up a sick list of dudes. And then they tell Biddy that he just needs to be himself, except like you're up in the hockey team, bro. And he needs to relax, but like YOLO. And most of all, above anything, remember, winter screws should be fun. Biddy, upon receiving this advice, looks very nervous and a little strange and virginal. He's in a suit, jacket, and a tie. And we go on to the next page, and he is at what I assume is a pregame and is not, in fact, the formal itself. He meets his date, who's some guy with green eyes and an orange shirt and a Santa hat and a beard. And then we see their night together as this guy gets increasingly drunk, accidentally elbows Biddy in the face, throws up on Biddy's shoes, has to be led away by somebody in a suit who is not Biddy, um, while Biddy looks very sad-eyed in the background. And at last, Biddy is outside of not the house, a building. I'm not sure what building it is, looking sad and shaking in the cold. And then who should appear but Jack Zimmerman, looking uh, dressed to the nines himself with slicked back hair. And he asks, Biddle, what are you doing? You'll catch a cold out here. Looking sort of very intense and aggressive-ish. Biddy responds, oh, Jack, I, I'm going back in. I just needed some fresh air, or or actually my date threw up on my shoes and ditched me, to which Jack responds, come on, I'm heading back to the house. Biddy inquires about his date, who apparently has a tennis match in the morning, so she left early, and then he walks Biddy back to the house, eventually offering him his jacket because Biddy is so cold. Yeah, I guess I would start by raising a point about why we're looking at this comic here, where it sort of goes chronologically, rather than looking at it at the point in time where it would have come out. So more around spring of year two, or not even looking at it at all. And... I don't want to beat this into the ground too much, but it's interesting to me that I just put it here when I was kind of planning out what we are going to look at. I didn't even think twice. It just felt to me like, oh, you know, this is a narrative story that goes linearly. So this is what happens after the closet story in the life of Biddy. So we'll look at it here. It's that was 14. This is 14.5. The next one's 15. But yeah, as we'll as we'll talk about, I'm not sure that that was necessarily the only right answer. I think there's also people who encountered this in different ways, right? If you got the Kickstarter year one book as it was being funded, you probably did encounter this much later than you had encountered the rest of the comic because presumably you'd read the rest of the comic when you funded the Kickstarter, right? But if you come across this book later, there's no guarantee when or how you'd come across it or how you'd read it because it's it's separated from the other comics. It's after the hockey shit strips, but it is still labeled 14.5. So if you were going through the book, you might go to 14.5 and then to 15 in a more chronological way. And the way that it's separated from those other strips is kind of curious. 
it makes it almost exist on a different timeline than the rest of the comic, much like the hockey shit strips do. Yeah, I mean, so for me, this is sort of inherently related to the question of like, is this canon? And I don't know that there's really like a great answer. My inclination would be to say yes, but I also have a much more expansive definition of the canon than other people do. I feel like something isn't necessarily canon or not canon based on whether or not an individual fan is aware of it and can access it. I know that a lot of people in this fandom make a distinction between the content of word of God and canon. To me, word of God is canon. If the creator of the comic says something definitive or puts something out materially, unless it is obviously and self-evidently not canonical, like it's presented as something that's a goof or a joke, which this is not, then it's canon, even if it's not in the comic, it's just something that the creator has said. This is something that other fans don't agree with. I've talked to people even in the past week who feel that things that are like on Ngozi's Twitter or in the blog posts or behind a paywall or whatever are not canon. This to me, it's like, well, it's in the book. Like, how how much more canon can you get than being in the book? At the same time, I have to imagine that the vast majority of people who only encounter check please through reading it online, which up until very recently was almost the entire readership of the comic, may not even know that this strip exists. So... It's weird. It's just weird. I don't know that I have a concrete answer about it, but to me it's emblematic of what's so alternately exhilarating and also exhausting about this fandom and this text. Because it's like, how are you ever supposed to access everything that's available if it's all tucked away and hidden in different places, scattered around multiple different media? It's impossible. How are you supposed to be a consumer of check plays. I agree. And I have a slightly narrower definition of canon than you do in the sense that I think that multiple canons can exist at the same time, which I don't know if you think that or not. Like, I'm not sure. But I think when Gozi says something on her Twitter, that's not necessarily enough for me for it to be canon unless it's accompanied by some kind of art or insertion into the comic itself. But that, but there's quite a lot of that because of the extras. So it's a really tricky canon to define. You know, with a movie, you look at a movie and you're like, well, that's sure something. And then when the director says something in an interview about it, it's much easier to determine whether or not there's textual evidence in that finite piece of media to back up what the director says. And some people feel that's word of God and not worth taking into account. And some people feel that it is worth taking into account and depends on the fan. But it's a much more discrete entity that you're trying to define versus check please because of the Patreon blog, because of live streams, because of tweets that are available and then unavailable, because of things that Ngozi writes and then deletes. There's all sorts of things that people have different memories of and different accesses to. And I actually think 
think that's a really good point. When you mention what's exhilarating about the comic, part of what makes the comic exciting, even as it's frustrating, is the treasure hunt of trying to figure out what happened when. And this has become more and more the case as I go back and reread the comic or as I go back and look for posts that I remember clearly, but which have disappeared into the ether. It becomes this really immersive experience, actually in a somewhat similar way as the comic was when it was cross-platform. And you could talk to Biddy and see what Biddy was up to. There is a somewhat similar immersive quality. It's less satisfying though, because instead of being met with canon and sort of like being met with this interactivity that is welcoming, you end up trying to navigate this maze of disappearing weird objects or inaccessible objects. So it's really compelling. At the same time, it can be really, really off-putting if you're not someone who likes to like do archival research, for example, by going into the Wayback Machine and seeing what's up or whatever. So it's a really interesting thing. I also, I so we were just talking about different concentric circles of access. And one of the pieces I think actually makes maybe more sense to bring up now in one of the trip books in the introduction written by notable fourth wall breaker, John Johnson, the, the goalie, there's this brief paragraph with Biddy's tweets. We have the next best thing to thought bubbles, which don't exist in the comic direct insight into my former teammates, unconscious mind through a stream of social media posts. A ton of story happens in these posts, basically all of the romance between J and B, you know. And get this, these aren't even all the tweets. And get this, even more stuff happened that wasn't in the comics or the tweets. The story between the panels, you can't touch it, but it's there. This is really typical comics theory. Like there's actually a lot of discussion if you read sort of books about comics, what happens between the panels, those white spaces between panels are called gutters and a lot of comic writers have a lot of opinions about what that means. Obviously this is also more metaphorical, the kinds of scenes that Ngozi doesn't show. And I think there's something to be said for fragmented storytelling styles where bits and pieces strain at the sort of seam of expression or whatever, and you have to kind of reach into the comic or into the piece of media in order to extract meaning. That's like a really compelling way of making readers feel really invested in a work. But my question is, does it work with check please? And it depends on the fan, but the answer sometimes seems to be no, because the price of trying to get around in the comic is just too high. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, to me, this note from Johnson at the start of the chirp book reads like an apollo rather than an admission of sort of comics theory. Not that I think that Ngozi is ignorant of comics theory, like she has a master's degree in sequential art. I'm sure this is her drawing on like things she knows and has thought about. But it's also a criticism that Check Please has received over and over again that the romance between Jack and Biddy mainly develops in the tweets and also not at all. Although interestingly here, this is like a little, a little tiny piece of the story between them exists in this comic that is probably the least read single bit of the Check Please canon. You know, I feel like a lot, I know she's writing in the voice of a character, which is like its own sort of in-joke and also another layer of the kind of fragmentary nature of this particular artwork, Gesamtkunstwerk. But I do feel like a lot of these author's notes and forewords and blog posts are essentially used to address criticisms that people make of the comic. And I think it's a really charitable reading to use storytelling theory to explain 
explain why the main plot of the comic doesn't happen in the comic. And when these two characters get together, so many people are just like, wait a minute, what? Now, I didn't have that reaction because I read the comic because I saw the images of Jack and Biddy getting together on my dashboard. And I was like, I guess I'll read this. But, you know, at a certain point, you have to do the work. That's how I feel as well, that you can make really interesting stories that push at what we expect stories to be and push at the fragmentary nature of literature. And again, I'm going to go on the record. I just don't think Check, Please is like really doing that. I think Check, Please is a pretty mainstream romance comic, occasionally rom-com comic. And it's failure to fulfill the conventions of the genre or even address some of the conventions of the genre by just skipping over it does not strengthen the work and also doesn't question what romance genres should be because ultimately the conclusions of the comic are extremely, you know, normative as far as romance goes. So it's really not doing much to push on anything. And so then I just really start to wonder, there's something really interesting about seeing this comic being written and created over a period of, I don't know, like seven years or whatever, and not giving itself flexibility in certain ways to change or not giving itself space to respond to critiques and to instead create not only concentric circles of canon, but also concentric circles of explanatory documents, some of which are necessary to understand what's happening in canon, and therefore then are they themselves canon, right? And so it leads right back into this argument of what exactly counts as part of the story. And I don't think, even though it at times was a strength of the comic, that Twitter when it was open was a really wonderful experience for me as a reader. It was really, really immersive and really fun. But I think ultimately it weakens the story quite a bit, which is too bad. Well, should we talk about the story that's in this comic strip? Yes, let's please. So the pregame is what they call the same thing at Yale right before their screw, or I guess now it's called first year formal. It is basically the venue at which you meet the person you are being screwed with. You know, I guess you pregame, you drink at it, but it's basically like a party before the party. So she's borrowing directly from Yale tradition there. I think that Jack's going to a dance look is super interesting. I have noticed that whenever Jack kind of gets into formal wear, he slicks his hair back like we see his dad do. Basically, every time we see his dad, especially at formal events. And I looked at the picture that was stuck into the blog post from Biddy's graduation at the end of year four, where Jack's parents and Biddy's parents are talking to each other. And Jack's dad is wearing the same outfit in, in that image that Jack is wearing to this dance. Not that I think this is intentional. I think it's just basically like man wearing white shirt, no tie, gray suit is like very standard. But, you know, in terms of building out Jack's character, it's kind of interesting. Also, Jack is wearing a watch like we see another hockey player do later in the comic. Not a lot of watches in this comic. Biddy wears one at least once. I don't know. I thought it was interesting as a as a signifier of 
how do men dress? What do hockey players use to kind of like build their identity? I love the fact that he's wearing the same thing as his dad and has done his hair in a similar way as his dad. I just think that that's like a little detail, whether purposeful or not. It does a lot of work. What work it does, I'll leave to you to decide. But I think the work is being done. I also think the way that he's holding himself in these panels is really interesting. Biddy is kind of holding himself as like uncomfortable in most of the panels. His body is tight. He's sort of smacked in the face or cold outside of a house. He's not having a great time. Jack is slouching in a sort of... Honestly, the first thing I thought when I saw this, even though I haven't seen iconic TV show Mad Men was Don Draper. So there's like a weird Don Draper vibe for me personally through Jack's appearance here, which is not common with Jack. Jack is usually also sort of uptight and nervous looking. And I just thought that was quite interesting. I'm not sure where it comes from, if it's because he's starting to take on the mantle of romantic lead at the time when this comic is drawn, or if maybe he's had a drink, although he doesn't drink at parties we hear, so who knows? But he just seems a little, I don't know, looser about the limbs than he normally does. And I like that. What do you know about Don Draper? I know he wears suits and he's a real asshole and he leans in chairs. Like he like leans back with like whiskey in his hand. That's it. That's the entirety. What do you know about Dick Whitman? Not one thing. All right, cool. Well, um, all I have to say is that you raise an interesting point that itself raises a lot of really disturbing points. And all I have to say is that Don Draper in this situation would be wearing a hat. I think the main thing is it's not the suit, it's the wet look. (laughs) It's the slick back hair. Write us your Mad Men AU and tell us all about it. Oh, he has a wife who's like very depressed, right? This is great. Somebody do this. We'll talk about it later. All right. I I like that comparison, if only because, yeah, I have seen all of Mad Men and interesting comparison. Also, while we're talking about Jack's appearance, you mentioned on our wonderful outline that Jack has this panel where his head is just not fully in the panel, it's just cut off. And it made me notice that not only is that the case, which it's not the first time this has happened, or maybe this is the first time this has happened in the comic. I haven't gone through and looked at at times when Jack's face wasn't entirely in a panel, but it's definitely happened more than once because I wrote meta about it once. So that's quite interesting to me because in sort of film theory 101, looking at whose faces get prioritized and whose don't is an interesting way of seeing through the gaze of the camera, or in this case, the gaze of the the comic, who has a certain personhood or or, or something. I mean, I think it's really complicated here because Jack clearly has a developed personhood and we care about him, but also does he? Like, that's worth exploring. And then I noticed after looking at that, that we see him when he finds Biddy outside, he has the slightly, you could read it as aggressive, but it's clearly not meant as aggressive. I think it's meant as like sort of intense and worried, slightly hard to read look on his face. And then we don't see his face again for the rest of the comic. It's the back of his head or his face gets cut off by the panel the whole time, which is a really interesting design move when you're pushing your love interest together with your main character. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. So my honest to God thoughts, and I don't think this is going to be popular, and it also can't really be substantiated, it's just a theory, is that because this is a free comic that she had to draw, it's just really lazy. Yeah, that seems possible. The first two panels are nothing. The entire second panel is just full of Biddy's face from the tits up, his bust, and then the words, winter screw should be fun on a blue background. If you compare the party scenes, in this comic to other party scenes that are 
underdrawn. They're just like super underdeveloped, even in terms of showing what the other members of the team are doing at the party. There's no character design work involved in this comic, barely anything on Biddy's date. The scenes outside are pretty underdeveloped. And like, fine, just to be clear, I'm not saying like, oh, that but she should have done more character design work on this particular comic, but it's just really underdeveloped in terms of atmosphere and how intentionally it's it's put together. Not that it's badly drawn, it just doesn't feel as careful and intentional and developed as the other strips that were being created around the same time that this strip was being created, which is second semester year two, which is this comic's creative tour de force. Not to be dramatic about it, but all of the strips in that series are really fantastic, really well done. Some of the most careful structuring and really thoughtful like scene laying that we get in all of Chuck Please. And this just doesn't quite match up to it in terms of creative and intellectual development. So I think she just didn't want to draw faces and she didn't want to think too hard about like blocking. I That's think- my conspiracy theory about this script. And you know what? Fine. Because no one's seeing it. It's stuck in the back of this dumb book. I fully buy into that conspiracy theory. At the same time, I'm really interested in the implications it has for Jack as a character and who Jack is to Biddy. Because if you attach this comic to Biddy's POV and then his love interest has one aggressive look on his face and then it's the back of his head, that suggests... I don't know, quite a potential, several interesting things. Whether Jack is fulfilling a role for Biddy, whether Jack's individuality matters to Biddy, whether Jack's face is always being shown turned to Biddy and not to the audience. What does that mean? I don't think that it's done on purpose, but I think it's kind of interesting to examine, especially as we look forward and think about as Jack's character develops or doesn't develop or develops and then underdevelops again. It's kind of interesting to think about. Well, chronologically, if we talk about just the canon of main comic strips, going in the linear narrative. This is the first time in canon that Biddy and Jack are seen being friendly to each other. This is their first potentially friendship-building interaction. There is... An interesting tension here between where this falls chronologically in terms of the narrative progression of Jack and Biddy making friends and falling in love and getting married and then having a toxic codependent relationship and then refusing to get divorced and traumatizing everybody in their lives by staying together into their 60s or 70s until Jack dies of an overdose. But I think there's an interesting tension here because this was being created again and released in the middle of year two when the narrative frisson and the kind of like fanish energy around this pairing getting together and flirting with each other and buying each other ovens in a very one-sided oven buying gesture and actually he makes the rest of the team pay for it you know what I'm getting ahead of myself point being it's interesting that the context in which this is being created and released is one in which the relationship between Jack and Biddy is completely different than it would have been perceived at the point in the real world when the comic was at the point in the timeline that this strip is presenting. I know this is like a really weird, half-baked, non-linear explanation of what's going on here, but this comic is supposed to be showing part of the journey of Jack and Biddy from antagonists 
or rivals or whatever to friends to soulmates. And I don't know. It's supposed to be telling us something about them being friends. And I'm just like really fucking frustrated that something like this isn't in the actual comic. I guess that's what I'm getting at is put this in the fucking actual comic. I'm trying not to be too annoyed that somebody who's still at the point where we're at in the reading of Check, Please, the winding down of the first semester of it, is still finding their footing and figuring things out. But she knew Jack and Biddy were going to get together. That is something that everybody knew was part of it, I guess, at this point, except for you, apparently. So the fact that these things are not naturally in the comic and you just have to presume that they're happening is just so fucked up and weird. That's it. Again, she is finding her footing as a writer and creator. She hasn't created a long-form comic before this she put online that anyone could find besides the closet story, which doesn't get finished. So I think there's definitely room to be flexible. However, if you keep reading the comic, it's not like it gets better. Things keep happening off screen. And there are reasons for that, I think. If you're thinking as an artist or whatever, um, I was talking to someone about making stuff and how sometimes the project that you think that you're making, there's too much pressure put on it and it becomes harder and harder to create. And you, the stories you end up telling tend to be the stories that you're making to get away from your main project. And so I think there might be something interesting to think about there in terms of why might it be easier for her to characterize people in extras than in the comic? What kind of pressures might you feel, especially as a comic unfolds and becomes your livelihood. I mean, I think there's something kind of interesting to explore there, which we can't know because we can't know Ngozi's interior experience. But maybe as we're thinking about the nature of art or whatever. That said, it doesn't make the comic better. And this kind of strip existing outside of the main strip and then not being made available to people who don't pay money for it. Yeah, I get it. Okay, it's stretch goals for the people who make the book, sure, whatever, but also it does a real disservice to the overall arc of the comic for, for people who are encountering it outside of this context. Moments like this, where you show the development of Jack and Biddy and their relationship, ought to be not afterthoughts or corollaries or ancillary to the main storyline. If that's the main storyline, it should be in the main storyline. And sometimes the kind of narrative absences are strengths. Because, obviously, sometimes things are just implied and wasting a character doing it on screen or saying it out loud is not giving the reader any more information than they would have otherwise had. Like, you don't need to see everything, and you don't need to treat your audience like they're so stupid that they don't know something is happening unless they're seeing it. At the same time, if you build the whole plot of the comic around the development of the relationship between these two people, you really ought to show the development of the relationship between these two people. It's the narrative weight that the comic is, is placing on what it's showing and not showing that makes these omissions really annoying. I guess the sort of overall implications of characterization that we see happening in this strip are also things that are kind of annoying and disturbing to me. But 
interesting to talk through. So uh, Biddy in this strip just seems like completely helpless. The thing with Jack and the take my coat, well, that's very heteronormative, isn't it? It's, it's traditionally what the guy would do. Of course, Jack's stupid sports coat or his suit jacket or whatever isn't gonna be that much help. It's just the way that Biddy is characterized as this like small shivering thing who is being puked on and when Jack finds him, he's sitting on a ledge, whereas Jack is standing up. And he just constantly looks like he's cowering into a little ball, and he can't take care of himself. And I find that really annoying. Possibly not unrelated is the fact that this comic cannot tolerate Biddy having any kind of like romantic feelings for, or desire for, or interest in one other man. I'm really interested in this because I think it is classic romance novel or sort of classic romance narrative. The shivering, pure hockey ingenue lighting matches outside to keep warm, you know, as he hides from the shoe puker or whatever. Being rescued by the hulking, dark-haired man who's outside and brings him a warm coat. I mean, it's very bodice ripper, to be honest, which isn't necessarily a compliment. I think it's quite interesting because it puts this question of genre that I personally am interested in into tension with the purported values of the comic, which have to do with unpacking toxic masculinity and queer rep and all of these other wonderful things, supposedly. But when we see this weird continuing removal of agency from Biddy, who I think you mentioned in a previous episode, seems to just have things happen to him through most of the semester. It starts raising interesting questions about what does it mean to be this character in this relationship who's different from these other hockey players, so on and so forth. It's like Biddy's purity has to remain intact for him to get together with Jack. I cannot tell you how much I hate that. It's an off-sided criticism of this comic that Biddy, like, dates nobody else. And that's a criticism that I would make. I think it just doesn't help us substantiate his eventual relationship with Jack if the only other time we see him dating somebody else in canon is a guy who is only ever shown frontally one time, he pukes on Biddy, and then that's it, he disappears from the narrative entirely. I realize, again, this is a cheap strip. She doesn't want to spend the time doing this. But like, build this guy up a little bit. Have them have a few panels of dialogue where Biddy's trying to get into it, but something's not working. Or have this guy come back in another strip and be like, sorry, I puked on you. Can we give it another shot? And Biddy tries to go out with him and he doesn't really enjoy himself. Or something like that. Do the work to show that Biddy has had experiences that are pushing him toward choosing Jack rather than just like passively waiting for Jack, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And like, I don't even think Biddy has a crush on Jack at this point in the chronological narrative. I don't think Biddy develops those feelings until kind of like the end of this year. The next thing we see him doing chronologically in Check, Please is complaining about the fact that Jack hates him. So interesting placement for this. This is what I'm talking about, not 
doing the work. I do think there's something about absences which calls to fandom and to fanfic because part of the reason that people tend to want to make fan work is because of an absence or gap or lack of coherence in the original text. At least that's my experience of making fan work. That's often what leads to it. I don't know. I kind of wonder whether fandom would exist in such a fervored way if, is that a word? Fevered? Fervorous? I don't know. This doesn't matter. In such an intense way, if the story was better told. (laughs) I'm not sure. But going back to this idea of the weird dynamic between Jack and Biddy and kind of Biddy's romantic heroine waiting for someone to sweep him off his feet from his virginal inexperience, it's problematic, I guess, sure. But that's not even what I really want to say. It's when I put it in conversation again with the reputation that this strip builds about what it means to have a queer identity and to have queer adulthood, it's like very depressing, actually, that your identity exists not even in relationship to other people as friends or as potential partners who you decide not to choose because they're not 100% compatible with you, but as this sort of quality which makes you ready for being plucked from like romantic obscurity by the man of your choice. I don't know. It just really bums me out. The same way that the idea of marrying the first guy you date at the age of 22 makes me feel very unhappy. Although on fire to write fan fiction. So I must say there's two different sets of fuels here, right? There's the part of me that wants to write about Jack and Biddy's insane marriage and Jack's death by CTE or whatever. And then there's the part of me that wants a nice narrative that makes me feel nice when I read it. And Jack, please just doesn't provide the latter option. There is this general wishy-washiness about his sexuality within the comic. People bring up the specter of Camilla Collins' namesake of me tumbler as uh, evidence that he is a bisexual or sometimes a pansexual people say even though the idea that Jackson Zimmerman would know what that was is very funny but she's not even in the strip she's not named in this strip and he also doesn't go home with her in this strip he has been set up with her quasi against his will by ransom and holster and you know there's a lot of real life or in-text reasons why a guy who was into women wouldn't go home with the girl he went to a dance with, like even if he liked and was attracted to her. But I think it's really interesting how maybe it's a corollary to the way that it like handles Biddy. The strip continually does not show us Jack having sex or even sexual interest in women. And I feel like if it wanted to like make the point that he was into women, it would show it a little more. I think we'll talk about Camilla Collins um a little more when she's like actually named within the comic she as far as we know right now it's like nothing the reason why we know this is the woman he went to this dance with is all because of extras and paratex and here's the thing my point about this isn't to argue that jack is gay it's to set up a conversation about the narrative thread of how his sexuality is being constructed within the comic that will come up several times like throughout the comic. So I'm trying to plant the seeds of 
further conversations we'll have when it becomes more textual. But I just think it's really interesting that generally nothing is ever overtly shown or stated about him really having a sexual interest in anybody other than eventually Biddy. And at the point in time when this strip was released in the Kickstarter version, recently also Kent Parson. And there was debate about whether or not he was attracted to Kent Parson. I remember there being differing interpretations of their fight and their relationship, which eventually, of course, get confirmed or not confirmed by word of God or by later strips. But I think it speaks to the ambiguity that kind of wraps the construction of Jack's sexuality, not in the sense that I think his sexuality is particularly ambiguous. I read him as gay. Personally, I think that you can read him as other things. I think that the narrative is not doing work though to show him as anything other than gay. That doesn't mean that it isn't a perfectly legitimate reading to see him as someone who's attracted to women. I think that that's fine. It's just not something that I particularly respond to. But I think that there's a gap around his sexuality because he never names it, because he doesn't talk about it. And that's because we're speaking about sort of fragments and gaps and what's said and what's not said. That's really interesting in the way that it provokes fan conversations around the topic and at times really heated fan conversations. Again, the reason I'm raising this is because I'm making the argument that the comic isn't doing the work to show us what's actually happening. If she wanted to show us Jack going to a dance with a woman, all it took was, you know, one of the very narrow panels on page three of Jack standing in the corner with a woman to at least embody the idea that he's there with a woman or really anything. I don't know. It's just something, something about this is so frustrating to me that people give this comic credit for like by representation when this is the representation it's giving you. Like it's not there. And it also just like, I don't know, it continually dodges And like racism then sort of abandons this point about Jack having an interior life that's really tantalizing and then doesn't materialize. It starts with, you know, the comment at the first kegster about him, you know, hooking up with women, getting sucked off upstairs. And then when it gives us opportunities to possibly show that or possibly, you know, build it out, it just like isn't present. And I'm getting frustrated about the ways that, again, fans, including me, look at what's there and give the comic credit for something that it's not actually doing. I don't know. That's all. But this is like a thread that's going to continue throughout the story. So I thought it was important to kind of like position it here because it's part of something that's being built up from here on out. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between reading into a text and saying, ah, I can make this true out of the information I have from the text and then giving the text credit for doing that on purpose. All the fan work is reading into texts and trying to make 
guesses and thoughts about what that text it holds and thinks and can be used to explore. But that doesn't mean that like, just because I wrote a Handmaid's Tale check please crossover that, you know, Jack Zimmerman has any thoughts about the state of affairs in Gilead. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's basically like, there's all sorts of things that like the canon isn't contradicting. So it's not contradicting necessarily the idea that Jack would be bi or he would be into women or he would substantively like interested in dating this woman who's the captain of the girls tennis team. It's just that it's not there. And what I'm getting frustrated by is the fact that it's not there. More so than I appreciate reading Jack as like exclusively into dudes, which is my preferred reading. I would prefer that the text give us something, like show us something, create some kind of interiority for these characters, try to like build them into people. And I guess one of the things that I'm taking away from rereading this comic is all of the absences that I'm noticing now that I never noticed before. Because I guess when the canon wasn't complete, I was just forever anticipating that those gaps would be filled in somehow. And now that the canon is closed, mostly, and I know that it's not going to be filled in, and we're rereading it as a whole work, I'm starting to get really frustrated by the way in which the comic is not putting any effort into demonstrating that these are characters with interior lives. How do we know that they're friends? How do we know that they're anything? They become paper doll-like, just like being moved around a set of buildings and backgrounds being pushed together by the force of generic convention. And that's not as exciting as what I thought this comic was when I read it first. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot of comic to go. In some ways, my sense of what's gonna happen next is that I think when the comic starts to get a lot sloppier, it also gets like more fun and kind of like juicier because there's tons and tons to chew on in some of these like really badly constructive narrative threads and just strips that are like giant messes. My mental picture and sort of like emotional resonance, emotional memory, I don't know, is that year two is really fucking good. I remember year two in the beginning of year three as this completely crazy making in a good way experience. Yeah, same. Maybe we'll start to see pick up my memory of the second semester of this year is that it's not that engaging. Yeah, I don't even remember. We'll what happened, so there you go. Do you want to talk a little bit about the art style and the development thereof? Over the course of this semester, so we just we just shit on uh, check please a lot, or at least our experience of reading this this first semester. I never really realized before we started doing this that like Jack and Shitty don't talk to each other this entire semester. And in fact, they don't even interact at all whatsoever until the very end of year one. I didn't realize just how much of the characterization in this comic, and especially in the beginning of this comic, was pretty much solely coming from extras. And I'm pretty sure that's by design. I think it 
it's kind of pushing certain types of interaction into extras so that more space in the comic can be kind of reserved for the plot, whatever that is. So the first several strips of this year, of the first semester of the comic, are all these like static shots of Biddy just kind of like sitting in front of the computer. And then there'll be a cut to him standing somewhere or sitting at a dining table in the dining hall or something. And as the comic has gone through the first semester, the art style has started to loosen up. We're getting a lot more environments. We're getting more expansively developed backgrounds and settings. The kind of stylistic or storyboard development is growing. We're getting different kinds of shots, different palettes. We got some different art styles with the hockey prints. The cast has not really grown very much, so we don't have necessarily a lot of new faces. But I feel like even over about six months, I think her style has radically evolved in a way that is like really positive. I think you could also argue that the development of the art style where, you know, Biddy's not just sitting in front of his computer vlogging, but he's like out in the world in a way that's part of the storytelling because his world is opening up, he's meeting people, he's growing friendships, he's developing in his hockey play. So there's like a symbolic, intentional possibly aspect to it. But I actually think it's probably just like somebody who's getting, you know, starting an MFA in like sequential art, growing their talent at visual storytelling. I can, but I just wanted to briefly comment, doing this podcast has made me reassess her visual language in, in a really positive way. She's even smarter than I thought she was in some ways about visual storytelling, which is exciting, especially as I'm getting more frustrated about certain aspects of the writing. So it's nice to see her develop in a really wonderful way and start to learn how to read that visual language in really interesting ways. But all of that aside, when we put the images and the words together, what is Check Please about? And is it what you thought it was about thus far as we've seen it over this semester? I mean, this is going to be frustrating, but I actually feel like this is not something I can answer just on the basis of the first semester of the comic. I feel like what something is about has a lot to do with where it begins and where it ends. I think it really is impossible for me not to read the work as a whole on this question. I think that the first semester of the comic in and of itself, if you take it just as a kind of single arc, is about a kid determining to become better at hockey and also finding his place in a clique of hockey players. When you think about the work as a whole, has this shifted what you thought it was about at all? I mean, it's now impossible for me to read the strips in the early part of the comic without thinking of the way that the comic ended. So all of the stuff about Biddy and checking now is impossible for me to unlink from the way that checking is part of the conclusion of the comic. And everything about Jack and Biddy interacting early on as antagonists is now impossible for me to read without, in the back of my mind, considering that, oh, these guys are going to be married. So the way that 
Jack is treating Biddy is no longer just happening for me in that one-off interaction. It's part of like a larger story about how they eventually get married. And I don't like what I'm seeing, but I think that was obvious at the outset. I wish Biddy was like a real person. I could basically tell, like, don't grow up and fall in love with this guy. He sucks. Yeah. I kind of wish I could also tell Jack that, like both of you, just take a breath, go for a walk, maybe see a They're taking a walk in this very strip, Tomato. But it's together. They need to take their own walks. They need to be on their own paths. Yeah, I feel kind of similarly. I remember really enjoying the beginning of the comic and I hadn't reread it for a while and re-encountering it, it is now impossible for me to detach all of the things that were little thorns in the side before from the gigantic thorn in my forehead, which is Jack and Biddy getting married and all of their friends being there for a god-awful hockey game after their proposal. A lot of things that I thought were going to be further developed or resolved or examined in a different way, I now I'm realizing not only weren't further developed or resolved or examined, but like were worse than I thought they were. On the other hand, some parts are better than I remembered, like the visual language and some of the character design is quite nice. And it's still fun to re-encounter certain aspects of the group that I know are going to develop further and that largely disappear in the last one or two years. So there's definitely still good stuff that I'm looking forward to and that I'm excited about. But I think I thought that this comic was about something other than capitulating to the heteropatriarchal capitalist societal expectations of like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turns out maybe it's not about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I always thought, or at least what I thought for the past, I don't know, three or four years, was that at a certain point, the author just went, fuck it, and decided to like back away from whatever Check Please was going to be and tell a really easy story that would satisfy. And that's when everything got fucked up. And it's really difficult for me to say, having reread the beginning now, whether or not I'm starting to see evidence of the way in which the comic got bad in the beginning of the comic. Is that because I've now read the end of the comic, so it's impossible for me to disconnect it from the beginning of the comic? Or is it because it was always there? I just don't know. I definitely think uh, some decisions were made. I definitely think some things were dropped. And we'll talk about it when we get there. But I think, yeah, it's it's just impossible to know if... I'm now reading like, oh, this was always, this was always heteronormative. This is always patriarchal or whatever, because I've just read the end. So I know that's the meaning that's slotted in at the end, or if it was always intended to be the reading. Mm-hmm. You just can't know, can you? It's been a delightful first semester talking with you every week about our beautiful Eric Biddle. What have we learned about podcasting? Uh, having a mouse. 
really makes sound editing much more helpful, even if your trackpad isn't broken. I am thinking about buying a mouse, not for only this reason, but you talking about how nice it is to have a mouse has really done some mouse propaganda for me. Oh my god, you can like click on things, you can use the cursor, it's really exciting. Maybe my trackpad was just broken for so long that I didn't realize what it was like to have a working cursor. I don't know. I'm not sure if you wrote this down or I wrote this down, but it says on the outline, recognizing your own personal speech patterns that are grating to listen to and frustrating to edit. And I will say that that's very true. I say, um, I already knew that I said, um, but wow, we edit out mostly secret edits out because I haven't edited that many episodes. Uh, (laughs) all the times I say, uh, So lucky you that you only get a handful of them. But man, I do a lot of thinking in the middle of my sentences. Don't take this as an insult, but I have become able to recognize on site the difference in audio editing software between um and ah when you say it. I say, you know, way too much. You know, I really pause between words. Like I try to speak very deliberately and slowly. Like I really do try to like think out my word choice very precisely. Not always to great success, but that pisses me the fuck off. And sometimes I think you can't tell in the edited version, but sometimes I think it's really, really easy to tell that I've edited something out. And I just... I don't know. I don't want readers or listeners to have to hear all of my pauses while I try to like edit a sentence in my head as I go along. See, I prefer that because then it's very easy to be like, oh, there's nothing here. Let me get rid of it. Versus for me, I see my own um and I'm like, ah, shit, is it an and or an um? Maybe someday I'll be as skilled as you are. You wrote editing audio is a lot like editing writing. Yeah, it is. I think that's all. It's interesting to me because I am an editor, like by profession, and I do quite a bit of looking at people's writing and just basically seeing, oh, this clause in the middle of the sentence is completely irrelevant. Goodbye. And there's a lot of that in our podcast. The way in which little extra words that don't need to be there, little extra phrases that don't need to be there, the idea that, oh, this entire three minutes of conversation is completely relevant to everything that's happening around it. So even if it's kind of interesting, it just breaks up the flow of the episode entirely and it shouldn't be in here, that kind of thing. I also edit various things, but in a different capacity than you do. And I find that I have the same weaknesses in my audio editing as I do in other kinds of editing where I have a hard time holding a holistic view of like the arc of something in my head. So for me, those little digressions, I'm like, well, I guess they're staying in. Maybe that will develop over time. We'll see. Yeah. Like, so you edited um, the past couple episodes. There's a conversation, I think, in, I think it's Samuel versus Yale 3. We had a conversation about John Mulaney and it's like, yeah, it was an interesting conversation about John Mulaney, but like, I would have just taken the whole thing out. I was thinking about taking it out, but then I didn't. Why did you leave that in? Oh, I thought it was interesting. This is what I'm learning is like, to me, it it is interesting. I thought it was an interesting conversation. So it doesn't really have anything to do with check, please. So it's like, that's the kind of stuff that it took me 
editing like 10 episodes to start figuring out, oh, I can just take out this whole thing. I hope that I will also figure that out. I've edited things before, audio and vi- like video, but but not a podcast. So I've edited scripted things before and that's completely a completely different experience. Yeah, I I never have. So all of this is sort of interesting to me. I've noticed that our podcasts, maybe with this one as an exception, tend to like start out really awkward and then they tend to get very passionate as we go along and we start to get into the meat. And I think the conversation kind of edits out. It usually takes me like twice as long to edit the first 20 to 30 minutes of the podcast as it does to edit the rest of the podcast because we get into a jive and we just start talking. Whereas at the beginning, it's kind of like, uh, mm, okay, uh, well. Um, you know, up until I was re-listening episodes to do this overview here, I had completely forgotten that 12 weeks ago, I was trying to research what was going on in hockey history at the time and giving <laughs> what was going on at the NHL. And I realized that after maybe like three or four or five episodes, I stopped doing that just because I was like, nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear this. Nobody's here. But I've heard so many podcasts where part of the context of the podcast is that they tell you what was happening around the time that what they're talking about was happening. I listened to Talking Simpsons. And the first thing they do every episode is they tell you what was going on in pop culture history at the time when the episode they're talking about aired. So obviously to me in doing a podcast, I was like, okay, here's what we have to do if we're gonna go strip by strip through through check plays. We have to talk about what was happening in hockey at the time. And obviously it was really important that the Chicago Blackhawks were winning a Stanley Cup. God bless them. But at a certain point I was just like, nobody cares about this. And I stopped. I similarly tried to stop mentioning so much about literary theory and autofiction. And I really feel like after I personally murdered Larry Kramer, I've taken it to heart. I'm trying my best. I don't want to murder anyone else. Can you believe Larry Kramer died like a month ago and we just stopped talking about it? You know, on the one hand, yes. And on the other hand, absolutely not. But on the third hand, it's a mess out there, man. Check Please is not autofiction. So, I mean, it is an autofiction. It's Biddy's autofiction in text. <laughs> what does MFA Biddy think about Larry Kramer? That's time. That's something for another time. Put oh, MFA Biddy has not heard about Larry Kramer. He doesn't know who that is. All right. Well, I mean, I meant it when I said keep your eye out for MFA fic. Coming soon. Having said that, we don't, as of right now, technically know where we're going next time exactly because... We don't yet have the results of our poll about our special episode, which closes on Sunday. So that's a couple days from now. So all of that is to say that our next episode is going to be a sort of special episode where we're probably going to be discussing fan fiction. The way that we phrased it in the poll was weird fan fiction Maybe we'll adjust and talk about some different version of fanfiction. That said, our favorite weird fanfics is winning at this point by a lot. It's winning by like six votes. How many people voted so far? 18. What? 18 
I wonder if there's some like ballot stuffing going on. I can't believe 18 people cared enough to vote in this poll. This is so exciting. You want to know what though? You want to know what's got zero votes is our fan fiction. Nobody wants to hear about that. Well, that's probably fine. After we do our bonus episode, we're going to be starting year one, semester two, which starts with 1.15 Lardo. So after our bonus app about weird fan fiction and or whatever guys that ends up taking, meet us back here and we'll pick up Biddy's story with an introduction of a new character. And I actually am looking forward to talking about that strip. Not because I think that strip is interesting, but because I think the introduction of Lardo, I have some things to say about it. I look forward to hearing them after our adventures through AO3. Where can people find you? Well, if people have heard this episode and thought to themselves, that's a good egg, come down to the chicken coop. Camillier at Tumblr, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or familiar on AO3, spelled the normal way. How about you? People can find me on Tumblr at tomatorights.tumblr.com, or they can find me on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. Well, as M. Pregnon used to say in the South Park fandom, my birthday is soon. All right, goodbye. Right, bye.